Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. We've got a lot on the program today. Are the oceans developing amnesia? And is that why we had three days of 116 degree weather here in Oregon last year? What is this going to mean for our planet? I wrote about Wetico in, uh, back in 1996 in a book called Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Today, Clayton Thomas Miller is uh, going to be with us. He, he is presenting at uh, Bioneers this weekend about a battle against the winter spirit, Wetico. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. And also, what will be the impact of hitting 1.5 degrees warming, this big threshold that everybody has been all freaked out about and worried about for a couple of decades now? The World Meteorological Organization just came out and said, we're going to hit that by 2026. What? Conservative Max Boot is speaking out in the Washington Post. I'll share that with you. Most Americans are in denial, he says. And we also have a clip from uh, Hakeem Jeffries asking Justice Clarence Thomas, why are you such a hater? You're going to love this. And our question of the day, if Elon Musk lets Donald Trump back on Twitter, how will that affect America? I'll get to that in a few minutes as well. But I want to start with my rant this morning from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Why Are Americans Subsidizing Our Own Extinction? Every American, every man, woman, and child in America, and I realize children don't write checks and don't have much financial wherewithal, but the equivalent of this, every single, so, you know, if, if you've got one kid, yeah, and you're a, a, a regular nuclear couple, then you and your wife probably paid $3,000 each, you know, on behalf of the $2,000 on behalf of your kids. Every American man, woman, and child paid around three, uh, around $2,000 last year to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. And this isn't coming from me. This is coming from the International Monetary Fund. Worldwide, it's a $6 trillion, $5.9 trillion, actually, technically, uh, subsidy to the fossil fuel industry, which is part of the reason why they're showing these multi-billion dollar profits right now. BP, Shell, uh, ExxonMobil, all huge profits in the first quarter of this year. America's $600 billion a year gift to the energy barons pours cash into this industry at the rate of a million dollars a minute. You and I, through our tax dollars, are giving a million dollars a minute to the fossil fuel industry. And in that, we're funding our own suicide. 
The world's biggest fossil fuel companies are sitting right now on claims to oil, gas, and coal that they fully intend to exploit. They're putting millions of dollars a, a, a day into these projects. And if all of these projects are used, it will raise the temperature of the Earth to 2.7 degrees Celsius, around 6 degrees Fahrenheit, which is enough to start a dinosaur-level extinction, according to many scientists. And while the fossil fuel companies are running these very sweet ads saying, you know, we're committed to becoming carbon, carbon neutral. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that the product they're selling is carbon neutral. It means they're going to insulate their buildings. Seriously. Now, it doesn't have to be this way. We could, we could lead the world in getting off our fossil fuel addiction if only our politicians would stop taking money from the big fossil fuel industry and do the right thing. You know, Donald Trump loved to proclaim, hey, the U.S. is now energy independent. And we are. We have been since the middle of the Obama administration. And here's an interesting fact. It costs about $23 a barrel to produce oil in the United States. This is an average. Some wells are more and some are less expensive. But it costs on average from a, an already producing well, $23 a barrel to produce oil in the United States. It costs $48 a barrel if you're gonna build, if you're gonna drill a new oil well from scratch, from, the, from acquiring the lease, to the permits, to the drilling, to the you know, building the well, to extracting the oil, that first year, the oil coming out is gonna cost you $48 a barrel. So the cost of oil produced in the United States is somewhere between $23 and $48 a barrel. And what are the oil companies in America selling oil for? 100 bucks a barrel, more or less. I mean, it varies from day to day, obviously. So why isn't American oil selling for 50 or $60 a barrel? Why haven't we kind of disconnected ourselves from world oil prices if we can produce all the oil we need? Well, that all goes back to 2015, when a massive and expensive lobbying effort by big oil was launched to reverse President Jerry Ford's 19... 75 ban on American oil companies exporting oil. Up until 2015, and uh, you know, I said yesterday, I thought Trump signed this law. It turns out it was Obama. It was every Republican in the House and Senate and a handful of Democrats. Heidi Heitkamp, for example, she's no longer the North, Democrat, the North Dakota Democratic Senator, but she was at the time, and she was a big champion for this. She said, the facts are clear. Lifting the ban is good for consumers, our economy, national security, and energy security. No, it's not. It's not good for any of those things. Heidkamp, by the way, is now a lobbyist. She most recently was hired by a bunch of rich people to block Build Back Better because it raises their taxes. So here we are. Five corrupt Republican justices on the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010 in the Citizens United decision said it is perfectly legal for oil companies to buy politicians. And people like Heidi Heidkamp had their hands out. And every single Republican and a good-sized handful of Democrats. Yes, we'll take money from the fossil fuel industry. We'll work on their behalf. We could have $60 a barrel oil in the United States right now if we just stopped letting our oil companies sell it overseas for $100 a barrel. 
I realize oil's a national or an international sold commodity and the oil markets are fungible and all that. Well, yeah, technically that's true. Tell that to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia sells oil to themselves for like, what, $10 a barrel? Gasoline is virtually free there because they produce more than they need. We produce more than we need. We could, we could define our own price of oil here in the United States. But instead, we're letting the oil companies screw us. The inflation it's causing is being blamed on Joe Biden. And meanwhile, over in Europe, guess what the European Union did this week? The European Union just voted to provide both a legal requirement and subsidies that by 2025, that's two and a half years down the road, every single public building in all 27 of the European Union countries, I think there's 27, every single building in every single one of the EU countries will be covered on its roof with solar panels. Everyone. Why? Because they want to stop being addicted to Russian oil. They're trying to go along with the sanctions. But here in the United States, what are we doing? Well, we're giving $600 billion this year in subsidies to the oil industry. We're allowing them to export American oil, which costs them $23 a barrel to, to, to pump, and we're allowing them to export it for $100 a barrel when they could be selling it in the United States for $50 or $60 a barrel. I mean, this is plain old flat-out nuts. Back in 2009, the G20, which included the United States, every single country to that meeting in 2009 signed an agreement saying that they would cut back on this $5.9 trillion worldwide subsidies from governments to the oil industry, that they would all work on cutting it back. And most of the, many of those countries have now cut back their subsidies in small ways, but they're cutting them back. In the United States, the subsidies that we give to the fossil fuel industry have increased. If we want to stop funding our own suicide, at a minimum, Congress needs to reverse this lobbyist-purchased 2015 law that President Obama signed that lets U.S. oil exports, uh, oil companies export their products. We must set a two- or three-year goal for phasing out all of the fossil fuel industry benefits, uh, subsidies, all $600 billion a year worth of them. That's almost the Pentagon budget is what we're handing over to the fossil fuel industry in the United States every year end those subsidies and take some of that money and put it into into green energy. I mean, this is in part, this was built into Build Back Better, which, of course, Joe Manchin and all the Republicans opposed. In fact, Joe Manchin is running ads in West Virginia right now for a Republican running for Congress saying, yeah, he's one of our guys. He voted against that terrible Build Back Better bill. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. <laughs> we need to get this thing under control. It's not just a matter of politics or, or even inflation. It's the future of our children and grandchildren. Okay, a couple other things. First of all, want proof? This is Papa Bear tweeting over on Twitter. Want proof that gas price gouging is underway? If you compare the gas and oil prices over a 20-year period, the oil price right now is well below the Great Recession peak, 
it is well below Obama's first term. The price of oil was actually higher than it is right now during Obama's first term. And yet the gas prices now are much, much higher than they were back then. So it's not the price of oil that's driving gas prices. It's decisions being made in the boardrooms of the big gas and oil companies who would much rather have Republican presidents who say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, drill all you want, than anybody else. A couple of other uh, issues of the day. We do have a question of the day. If you go over to HartmanReport.com, at the top you'll see a category called question of the day. And our question of the day is, if Elon Musk lets Trump back on Twitter, how will it affect America? I mean, this guy has been so well-trained at media. General, General Electric spent like millions of dollars training Donald Trump on how to do media. And the platform does matter. You know, if you, if you get on a national platform, your voice is, is much louder. I mean, it's, it's not just talent or ability. It's also having the platform. So when he gets a megaphone on Twitter, it'll be big news. And it'll be, big, it'll be a big presence. Um, he's no longer president, but he is the leader of a cult and most of the GOP. The big question is whether he'll do more harm than good to the Republican Party and whether they'll follow him as he tries to, take, to retake the government, just like Hitler did with radio and, and print media when he made his comeback back in 1932-33. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Elon Musk has said, yeah, we're going to do this. Also, both Steve Schmidt and Max Boot are warning us about the death of democracy. Max Boot today in the Washington Post, he says uh, CNN was asked if it's likely that in the next few years some elect elected officials will successfully overturn the results of, the, of an election. Only 44% of Democrats said no, uh, which is pretty amazing. Republicans have succeeded in redistricting voting in 19 states, he says. Democrats have failed to protect voting rights at the national level because they can't break a Senate filibuster thanks to uh, Manchin and Cinema. Meanwhile, at least 23 supporters of the big lie are running for Secretary of State post to oversee elections in 19 states. Other election deniers are joining election boards. He said maggot Republicans, uh, this is Max Boot, will not hesitate to steal the election in 2024, the presidential election in an authoritarian way. He says even if the Senate remains Democratic, a GOP-controlled House could prevent Biden from getting the 270 electoral votes needed to win and it would then fall to the House to decide the presidency. The only way, now Max Boot is a lifelong Republican and an outspoken conservative columnist, big fan of the Iraq war, big fan of George W. Bush. He says, he writes in the Washington Post today, the only way to save democracy is to vote for Democrats in the fall. And I say that as an ex-Republican. He said, like so many Ukrainians before February 24th, most Americans remain in denial about the threat to our country. It's true. Are you seeing Republicans who are in denial to the threat about our country? Or are you seeing Republicans, other Republicans you know, ecstatic, enthusiastic, giddy about the possibility of overthrowing the 2024 presidential election and putting somebody like Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump or, or uh, you know, Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton You're in there. listening to the Tom Hartman program. Rick Scott, Ted Cruz. There's no shortage of wannabe fascist strongman presidents over on the Republican side. Do you think your Republican friends realize what's going on? Hey, 
It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. How are you doing today? Hey, Professor, I'm doing good. This is just one of them important matters to me that I've been noticing almost for the last decade that here in the northern hemisphere that, that our temperatures have been abnormally cooler, the lack of uh, lower 100-degree days, not as many 100-degree days and stuff. And basically... We have heat generators and heat sinks that are the ocean and are the burning of fossil fuels. And then we have the other part of the equation is the ice. So this report that you were referring to earlier about the accelerated warming that's coming yeah. or they're predicting, that basically I think this is tied directly to uh, the the volume of ice on the planet in the poles. So as that volume of ice dwindles, then we're going to see a, a skyrocket or exponential growth in temperature uh, because the heat sinks and the heat production uh, will overwhelm it. And what's been abnormally cool uh, in the northern part, which you notice something different uh, with your northwest. Well, no, it's been absolutely uh, ab abnormally cool here. We've only had literally two days so far this year where we could sit outside comfortably where it was 70 degrees, more or less. Uh, today, when I walked in this morning, it was 49 degrees and windy. It was a totally, it was like a Newfoundland day. It was totally blustery. And that's yep. been the norm every day since, you know, basically the end of February. Have you noticed it in prior years like that? No, I, mean, I have no recollection of a year like this where there was no spring. Huh, uh, well, you're right. We didn't, we didn't really have spring. We had a lot of clouds and it was abnormally cool. And uh, now it's gone right to 90 degrees, and uh, and the air conditioners went from turned the heat on and turned the air conditioners on uh, off and on. Uh, normally, there would be like a two to three week, you know, spring late a transition spring period. Would, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, do I have time to make one more point? Yeah. On another topic. Um, the other day, I wanted to call you on uh, when you were talking about. Uh, the sovereigns not paying their uh, uh, utility bills and stuff like that. Yeah, this is the QAnon, uh, new QAnon thing, picking yeah. off, pick, taking off the sovereign citizen thing. Well, QAnon just put a bite into it. They just, yeah. just put their name on it lately. I think this goes back to Ayn Rand 
uh, and uh, going golf. I have talked to you about this, referred mm-hmm. to it before. And basically, going golf is just, say, refusing to deal. And that's exactly or in, 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 uh, that's exactly what the Republicans are doing to the Democrats when they will not bargain in good faith. It's exactly what uh, uh, tax uh, people uh, who refuse to pay their taxes. It's exactly what now the sovereigns. It's been an evolution, this going golf mentality of just quitting. Yeah. You know, and it all started back there with Ayn Rand and somebody else is co-opting her philosophy and her ideas. That so, makes it makes a lot of sense, Randy. I mean, it's uh, yeah. did you ever read that terrible novel, Atlas Shrugged? No, sir, I didn't. Uh, but I did look up and uh, I'm interested to do some research on it. And it's been many years ago. Yeah. I don't know if I have the information myself or yeah, not. It's totally weird. Going golf. I, I could not going finish golf. it. It was so badly written. Uh, so I read the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> Randy, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Nate, if you have that video of Hakeem Jeffries, let's let's play that thing while I'm waiting for my, my computer to wake back up again. Uh, so this is uh, Hakeem Jeffries. This is just absolutely amazing. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is you know a, a member of Congress, uh, the United States Congress, and the House of Representatives, and here he is asking his question for Clarence Thomas. And if Justice Thomas really wants to deal with bullying in America or this problem of people supposedly unwilling to accept outcomes that they don't like, I've got some advice for Justice Thomas. Start in your own home. Have a conversation with Jeannie Thomas. She refused to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. Why? Because she didn't like the outcome. And so instead, she tried to steal the election, overthrow the United States government, and install a tyrant. That's bullying. That's being unwilling to accept an outcome because you don't like the results, because the former twice impeached so-called president of the United States of America lost legitimately to Joe Biden. How did she respond? Instead, she said, the Bidens should face a military tribunal in Guantanamo Bay on trumped up charges of sedition. You've got to be kidding me. And lastly, let me ask this question of Brother Thomas. Why are you such a hater? Hate on civil rights, hate on women's rights, hate on reproductive rights, hate on voting rights, hate on marital rights, hate on equal protection under the law, hate on liberty and justice for all, hate on free and fair elections. Why are you such a hater? And you think you can get away with it, escape public scrutiny. Because you think that shamelessness is your superpower? Uh, Mr. Chairman, a point well, of here's, order. Here's a news flash Mr. Chairman, straight from the House Judiciary Committee. Order. Truth Time crust the to the ground will rise Time. again, and truth will prevail. I don't know how the, the very end got cut off there, but there it is. That's uh, Hakeem Jeffries in the United States House of Representatives calling out Clarence Thomas. Brilliant. Jim in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Jim, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for the call. Quickly, the obvious thing that's in my mind is just everything that I've been watching. I believe that the Republicans are not going to let Biden succeed in any pertinent bill for us citizens, period. Yeah, agreed. And just like they just like they tried to block everything Obama did. And they successfully blocked probably 80 percent of what Obama wanted to do. Yeah, it's a mirror image, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
we are going to see if the GOP will even vote alongside the Dems on this new pack, $10 billion package that Biden is proposing for COVID relief to send to the states. Oh, they've already said no to the to, 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 to a slightly large, I think it was $22 billion for for present COVID plus planning for future pandemics. So the Republicans yeah. said, no, we won't go along with that. No. And, and we, it's nuts. It, we got one depth, yeah. I mean, it's it's a shame to see one man, and we know who I'm talking about, one man in the Senate blocking progression for this country. Yeah. Well, it's not just it's not just Mitch McConnell. It's also all, the the, no, the right wing Republican. It's it's yeah. all it's also the right wing Republican billionaires who are telling these politicians how they have to vote. And let's be very clear yeah. that that's going on. And then, of course, you've got Donald Trump down in Mar-a-Lago saying, hey, Putin told me to do everything I can to damage America and damage NATO and damage the European Union. And I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm going to tell Republicans to do that. And that's become Republican doctrine. So, Jim, I'm, I'm totally with you. Russ in Redding, California. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? It's something that we can do about climate change on a personal level. I've been uh, running on E85, which is 85% ethanol and gasoline. On This is a tailpipe test. My monoxide was zero, and my dioxide was 0.27 parts per million for dioxide. Hmm. So it's a very, very clean fuel. I believe up in Oregon you're running them partially on ethanol. Yeah, we're, I think but, it's 15 percent here, not 85 percent. Right. But uh, our fuel-injected vehicles can run on that. I've got a 2005 Toyota Tundra mm -hmm. and a uh, 2012 Honda. Mm -hmm. I've been running on E85 for uh, at least a year and a half. Yeah, it keeps the and, engines cleaner, too. It you know cleans the injectors. Hey, right. It's a great solvent. I mean, we 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 can do this. They're doing it in the Midwest, and uh, we could do it here, and it would be huge. Amen. Rush, thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for sharing your story with us. That's fascinating. Thanks for listening to KFOI. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Naomi Klein's brilliant new book, This Changes Everything. This from the introduction. A voice came over the intercom. Would the passengers of Flight 3935, scheduled to depart Washington, D.C. for Charleston, South Carolina, kindly collect their carry-on luggage and get off the plane? They went down the stairs and gathered on the hot tarmac. Then they saw something unusual. The wheels of the U.S. Airways jet had sunk into the black pavement as if it was wet cement. The wheels were lodged so deep, in fact, that the truck that came to tow the plane away couldn't pry out loose. The airline had hoped that without the added weight of the plane's 35 passengers, the aircraft would be light enough to pull. It wasn't. Someone posted a picture. Why is my flight canceled? Because D.C. is so damn hot that our planes sank four inches into the pavement. Eventually, a larger, more powerful vehicle was brought in to tow the plane, and this time it worked. The plane finally took off three hours behind schedule. The spokesperson for the airline blamed the incident on very unusual temperatures. The temperatures in the summer of 2012 were indeed unusually hot, as they were the year before and the year before. And it's no mystery why this has been happening. The profligate burning of fossil fuels, the very thing that U.S. Airways was bound and determined to do, despite the inconvenience presented by a, a melting tarmac. This irony, the fact that the burning of fossil fuels is so radically changing our climate that it's getting in the way of our capacity to burn fossil fuels, 
did not stop the passengers of Flight 3935 from reembarking and continuing their journeys, nor was climate change mentioned in any of the major news coverage of the incident. I'm in no position to judge these passengers. All of us who live high consumer lifestyles, wherever we may happen to reside, are metaphorically passengers on Flight 3935. Faced with a crisis that threatens our survival as a species, our entire culture is continuing to do the very thing that caused the crisis, only with an extra dose of elbow grease behind it. Like the airline bringing in a truck with a more powerful engine to tow that plane, the global economy is upping the ante from conventional sources of fossil fuels to even dirtier and more dangerous versions. Bitumen from the Alberta tar sands, oil from deepwater drilling, gas from hydraulic fracturing, fracking, coal from detonated mountains, and so on. Meanwhile, each supercharged natural disaster produces new irony-laden snapshots of a climate increasingly inhospitable to the very industries most responsible for its warming, like the 2013 historic floods in Calgary that forced the head offices of the oil companies mining the Alberta tar sands to go dark and send their employees home, while a train carrying flammable petroleum products teetered on the edge of a disintegrating rail bridge, or the drought that hit the Mississippi River one year earlier, pushing water levels so low that barges loaded with coal and oil were unable to move for days while they waited for the Army Corps of Engineers to dredge a a channel. They had to appropriate funds allocated to rebuild from the previous year's historic flooding along the same waterway. Or the coal-fired power plants in other parts of the country that were temporarily shut down because the waterways that they draw into cooler machinery were either too hot or too dry, or in some cases both. Living with this kind of cognitive dissonance is simply part of being alive in this jarring moment of history when a crisis we have been studiously ignoring is hitting us in the face, and yet we're doubling down on the stuff that caused the crisis in the first place. I denied climate change for longer than I care to admit. I knew it was happening, sure, and not like Donald Trump and the Tea Partiers going on about how the continued existence of winter proves it's all a hoax, but I stayed pretty hazy on the details and only skimmed most of the news stories, especially the really scary ones. I told myself the science was too complicated and that the environmentalists, they're dealing with it. And I continue to behave as if there was nothing wrong with the shiny card in my wallet attesting to my elite frequent flyer status. A great many of us engage in this kind of climate change denial. We look for a split second and then we look away. Or we look but then turn it into a joke. More signs of the apocalypse! Which is another way of looking away. Or we look but tell ourselves comforting stories about how humans are clever and we'll come up with a technological miracle that will safely suck the carbon out of the skies or magically turn down the heat of the sun, which I was to discover while researching this book is yet another way of looking away. Or we look but try to be hyper-rational about it. Dollar for dollar, it's more efficient to focus on economic development than climate change since wealth is the best protection from weather extremes, as if having a few more dollars will make much difference when your city is underwater, which is a way of looking away if you happen to be a policy wonk. Or we look but tell ourselves we're too busy to care about something so distant and abstract, even though we saw the water in the subways in New York City and the people on the rooftops in New Orleans and know that no one is safe, the most vulnerable least of all. And though perfectly understandable, this too is a way of looking away. We look but tell ourselves that all we can do is focus on ourselves, meditate and shop at farmer's markets and stop driving. But forget trying to actually change the systems that are making the crisis inevitable because that's too much bad energy and it'll never work. And at first it may appear as if we are looking, because many of these lifestyle changes are indeed part of the solution, but we still have one eye tightly shut. Or maybe we look, really look, but then inevitably we seem to forget. Remember and then forget again. Climate change is like that. It's hard to keep in your head for very long. 
engage in this odd form of on-again, off-again ecological amnesia for perfectly rational reasons. We deny it because we fear that letting in the full reality of this crisis will change everything. And we are right. And the book is This Changes Everything by Naomi. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Jared in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? Hey, John, thanks for taking my call. Sure. The Department of Commerce's trade case that has essentially stalled the U.S. utility scale. So this anti-dumping trade case that's focused on the four main Southeast Asian companies, or countries rather, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and Malaysia, where the U.S. imports cells and modules for solar panels that are deployed at utility scale in the United States market. Mm -hmm. That process has been completely halted by just the threat of this tariff investigation. And I want to point you and your audience to a couple of, of headlines that one today from Washington Post Secretary Raimondo fails to reassure a rattled solar market. Right. And it's in reference to her testimony in front of the Senate Appropriations Committee, whereby she essentially was questioned rather thoroughly by Senator Schatz from Hawaii and others regarding this case. And by all accounts, it was insufficient. And the ramifications of this case are already gutting the U.S. market. A New York Times article solar industry frozen as Biden administration investigates China is another detailed analysis of this, whereby right. over 300 solar projects across the United States are frozen in place, unable to advance and come online based on their inability to purchase solar modules uh, on the market. Right. And um, the result here, unfortunately, is that more solar will be built in this country under Donald J. Trump than Joseph Biden, and it's uh, well, we'll see. unacceptable. But, but uh, it, it, the solar, you mean solar, more solar will be installed. They're being built in Vietnam and, and, and China and, and Malaysia. They're, uh, you know, and, they're, they're, and that's I, correct. And they're my recollection is there. that, that Build correct. Back Better had some substantial uh, subsidies to build you know, to encourage companies to build solar factories here, right, right here in the United States, build solar panels here in Absolutely. the United States. And, and, Absolutely. And, of course, that got shot down in the Senate by every single Republican and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. 
But you know, this is a big issue. Jared, thanks for the flag on that. Let me let me see if we, uh, maybe we can get Lori Wallach on. She's the expert on all things trade, and I would love to know if she has any inside information on this and you know what the real story is behind it, whether it makes any sense, whether this is just general craziness as it, as it sounds from the way that you're characterizing it, Jared. Thanks a lot for the call. Let me let me do some digging on that, and I will report back to you, or we will have a guest who will report back to you shortly. The Bioneers Conference, which uh, I have participated with uh, on and off over many, many years, many decades actually, is this weekend, uh, May 13th through the 15th. Bioneers.org, of course, is the website. And one of their speakers is going to be Clayton Thomas Muller. He is the, or Mueller, he is the senior campaign specialist at 350.org. Uh, Twitter handle is Cree Clayton or at 350 Canada or at Bioneers. Uh, Clayton, welcome to the program. Tell us about uh, your this uh, winter spirit of Wittigo. Yeah, well, you you know that's the title of the presentation I'll be given at this weekend's Bioneers Conference. And for the listeners, you know, I'm really happy to to speak to y'all today. My name's Clay. I come from Canada. I'm an Indigenous man from the Cree Nation. And in our cosmology, you know, there's a story where. You're not supposed to go outside during the winter when the snow is flying sideways because that's when the winter spirit comes out and they can get you. And the winter spirit represents this kind of uh, untainable, insatiable, cannibalistic hunger. Um, you know, the kind of hunger that can only happen in our long, dark winter nights here in Canada. And, um, and so, you know, I'm going to be talking a little bit about that cosmo cosmology from our people and how that's a broader metaphor, you know, for the for the incredible challenges that we currently face as humanity, you know, dealing with this predatorial uh, capitalist economic paradigm that we're living in right now. Back in 1995, I was writing a book on the uh the fate and future of oil and climate and all that kind of stuff. It was titled The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, which is oil, basically. And I went yep. out to the University of California at Davis and uh, interviewed Jack Forbes, he, uh, Dr. Jack Forbes. He was a professor of Native American studies there, um, Native mm -hmm. American himself. And he told me this story, um, and I thought it was Lakota, but uh, he said that there was this mental, a cultural mental illness. Yeah, he called it wetico. Uh, W-E-T-I-K-O, uh, and uh, he said that it was brought by the Europeans to this continent and that basically what it meant was uh, a person who was a cannibal, who ate the spirit of others, who ate the lives of others. Um, he said you could probably call it materialistic greed today, um, but it was recognized pretty universally by native peoples across this continent. And it confronted them with, you know, uh, three terrible choices when Europeans came to destroy them and steal their land, which was either, you know, fight and probably die because of the superior technology, um, uh, run, uh, although eventually you'll run out of places to, to run to, or become like them and, and infect yourself with this cultural mental illness. Is this the same sort of thing that you're talking about? And, and is this a... Uh, a universal uh, uh, understanding among indigenous and aboriginal people? Well, I think there's a lot of shared, you know, uh, um, you know, values and world and, and cosmovision 
you know, between the incredible diversity of indigenous peoples across Mother Earth and certainly here in Turtle Island. And, you know, I've, I too have heard many stories about the cannibal spirit or, you know, the Wittigu. The story you're sharing does remind me of something that I've heard along the way as well. Um, I can only speak, though, to the perspective that I'm sharing. Where I come from, you know, like back home up north, mm-hmm. you know, the Wittigu, it was something that existed before Munias came here to our lands, you know, before the, the arrival of, of European colonizers. And, um, but, you know, I think that it's very accurate, though, to compare, you know, that, 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 that uh, predatorial nature of that spirit, um, you know, to, you know, this sickness of greed, really, that humanity is, is, is collectively going through. And of course, that, that that empty space inside that people are trying to fill with consumerism, of course, was created by a disconnection to the sacredness of nature, of Mother Earth, you know. And um, so a lot of what I'm going to be sharing about at the conference is, is really just, you know, affirming what Indigenous peoples have been saying for, you know, since, since colonization started, leading up to the, you know, existential threat of climate change that we're currently facing and that is that there's a way to take care of our land and you know we've been here for thousands of years observing on how best to do that and show up and play our part in the circle of life and i think now more than ever as we face the triple threat of global pandemic economic recession at a scale that we've never seen and of course the existential threat of climate change i think we're going to need indigenous people's traditional ecological knowledge as well as you know, the very young Western science, um, you know, and, and, and some good old fashioned faith to get through um, this process that we're all going through as far in terms of building the biggest social movement in the history of humankind to deal with these issues. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I, if I could um, put on a sociologist's hat, I'm not one, but <laughs> pretend I'm one, uh, or yeah. maybe even a, a cultural psychologist. Um, I find it fascinating that you know there there is this uh, cultural mental illness you know it's it's embedded in all of us the potential for it of greed um greed mm-hmm. that can become so overwhelming that that a, a greedy person is willing to actually destroy the lives of other people even kill other people to get what they have or or to accomplish what they want and that your people the cree people had developed a uh a, kind of an epistemology around a story around this that it was the result of somebody going outside in winter when the when the snow was blowing sideways and uh, I, that that's so cool it's like okay that could happen to anybody right and and it might happen you know you might have to do that at some point and oh my god now is it but tell me if my understanding of this is correct yeah. it's a way of identifying people who are infected with greed who may be acting out that greed and maybe there's a better word for it but um, you know I'll toss that to you and identifying it in a way that is not particularly judgmental. It doesn't say, oh, you were born bad or you're a terrible person or whatever. It's like, oh, you had the misfortune of having to go outside when the snow was going sideways. And so you can then deal with it in a cultural context that's not judgmental, but is still Mm. dealing with it. Am I making sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that like on a very direct family level, you know, my, my grand, there's a story about my great, my late great grandfather and he battled a Wittigu in real life. And um, when he fought that Wittigu, he was a young man and you know, he was out on a hunt and 
he was going by an island and he got pulled to the island, his canoe, by, by a force. And when he got to the shore, there was a man there that had no lips and no fingertips. He had eaten them. And um, he tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed and he had to fight him with his hands and his gun. And uh, he, he, he did win, you know, that battle. But uh, he became so ill for the rest of the summer and his hair turned completely white. And um, so there's both a physical, I think, like like I hear what you're saying, like right. indigenous peoples in our languages, you know, they're polyamorphic, they're non-written. Our history is oral right. history. It passes through storytelling. And I think there is an indigenous cosmology, you know, like a, a usefulness in that context uh, in terms of the transmission of, of knowledge and information and, you know, safety and stuff mm-hmm. um you know and where, there's a, where a lot of the whole, to it. but there's a spiritual dimension to it and also just straight up reality you know the world yeah. is much much uh uh wider and deeper than you know what we see in western media <laughs> right I, absolutely I'm, I'm totally with you we're talking with clay thomas muller who is the senior campaign specialist at 350.org and will be speaking this weekend at the pioneers conference uh, uh, a, a member of the cree nation in canada um clay uh, we're, we're running out of time here but you know last yeah. question how can how can we best incorporate something analogous to this understanding that that greed is a cultural mental illness that it should be treated you know that that people who have this i mean you know i'm thinking of some of the billionaires among us frankly and some of the politicians you know how how can western society um, uh, for lack of a better phrase um create or invent a, a a cultural story that allows us to deal with this or do we already have it we just need to start condemning greed well, I think that I think that a lot of the, a lot of things do exist already, and there's no need to create the wheel. And there are rich and powerful, uh, you know, bioregionally rooted cultures that provide pathways into the future um, from lessons learned from the past. And I think that you know we face a moral uh, crisis in our political, you know, uh, uh, ecosystem. And you know, when you got people like uh, Elon Musk, you know, the son of a apartheid uh, a miner go uh, like a jeweled miner owner or whatever i don't know like a bajillionaire father um is like the most famous and richest person in the united states like there's a big problem there you know dude just bought twitter when he said he was gonna pay the six billion to solve world hunger and then didn't solve world hunger and bought yeah. twitter it's like we're in a real messed up state of affairs and i i don't really waste my time focused on those with privilege and power instead i use my time and you know the voice that creator gave me to try and activate and inspire and support other people whose liberation struggle is tied in with my own and at the end of the day you know the solution to climate change is the localization of power in the interest of globalizing justice and so whatever the solutions are they must be locally driven through community self-determination brilliantly said clayton thomas moore a senior campaign specialist at 350.org. You'll be able to see him at Bioneers.org this weekend. Thank you, Clay. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. A couple of quick things I wanted to point out to you. The first is the Wisconsin Republican State Legislature just approved a, a new piece of legislation allowing 14-year-olds to work as late as 11 p.m. Why? To plug up the labor shortage. This is for fast food restaurants. Yeah, seriously, they would rather bring back child labor, 14-year-olds, 
than pay workers a living wage. It's amazing. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Okay. Also, our geeky science for the day are the oceans developing amnesia. This is a pretty startling story. I had no idea. I did not know about this. This was just published, a new study just published in Science Advances, a peer-reviewed scientific journal, that the, the suggests the sea is losing its memory. Well, what's its memory? Well, it turns out that the top layer of the ocean is kind of like memory foam. You know that stuff you can put on top of your mattress? When things happen, it kind of remembers them. It moves slowly. It changes slowly. It adjusts to circumstances very, very slowly. Uh, yeah, I mean, like over periods of years or, or decades or even centuries because it's stable. Well, what's happening as a result of global warming is that the ocean, that top layer of the ocean has become unstable. And so much like our weather is becoming unstable, except that the oceans drive our weather more than the weather drives the oceans. In fact, the principal thing that drives our weather is the oceans. And it turns out that this failure of memory by the oceans, the failure to remember what temperature they normally are or how they normally flow or how much oxygen is in what layers, that failure to remember is why we had 116 degree temperatures here in Portland for three days last, last June. And this is a huge concern because fisheries, for example, depend on a stable ocean. Unstable ocean conditions can also in influence temperature, precipitation, and extreme weather events all around the world, and your marine populations, of course, uh, require a stable environment. So this is, I mean, this is, uh, it's like every day we learn something new, some more new science that points out how, t how potentially dangerous the lies that the fossil fuel industry has been telling us for 50 years that their product doesn't cause climate change are and have been. It's truly, truly extraordinary. Okay, our house is on fire. This was to me shocking news. The World Meteorological Organization. Now this is not the IPCC, for better or for worse. These are meteorologists. This is the organization of meteorologists all around the world. People who track weather. These are not climate scientists in the largest sense. They're not, you know, modeling CO2 versus methane and that kind of stuff. They're just looking at how hot is it? How cold is it? Where is it raining? Meteorologists. 
The World Meteorological Organization warned on Monday of this week that the planet now faces a 50% chance of hitting 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels over the next five years. Look at what's going on in India right now. People are dying across the subcontinent. And by the way, it's a month early for the heat. In 2015, by comparison, the likelihood was estimated to be close to zero. So here we are seven years later. In 2015, the World Meteorological Organization was looking out at temperatures. How are temperatures rising based on what we're seeing, based on the trends that we're seeing? And they said, yeah, you know, by, by 2025, is there a chance that there'll be, you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming? You know, three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, more or less, of warming? No, not a chance. And here, seven years later, they're looking at the, at, the, at the new and improved data, as it were, and they're going, whoa, this is not good. The Paris Climate Accords that we all signed up to prefer a 1.5 degrees Celsius stop point, but they don't mandate that. First of all, they don't mandate anything. It's all voluntary. But secondly, they just come right out and say, we want to prevent two degrees. That would be the disaster point. We would prefer to stop at 1.5 because it was a consensus document. It had to be agreed to by every single country that was a party to it. Pateri Taalas, the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Association or organization, said in a statement Monday, quote, the 1.5 degrees Celsius figure is not some random statistic. It is rather an indicator of the point at which climate impacts will become increasingly harmful for people and indeed the entire planet. He adds, our oceans will continue to get, become warmer and more acidic. Sea ice and glaciers will continue to melt. Sea level will continue to rise, and our weather will continue to become more extreme. Meanwhile, key, not quoting him any longer, key ecosystems could be damaged beyond repair in a 1.5 degrees Celsius world, which we might hit in five years, according to these folks. One recent study found that 99% of the world's coral reefs would experience heat waves that are too frequent for them to recover if the planet hits 1.5 degrees Celsius. The IPCC cautioned last month that it is now or never. This is from the IPCC, the co-chair of the IPCC Working Group 3, uh, Jim Skia. He said, without immediate and deep emissions reductions across all sectors, it will be impossible. Now, the it that he was talking about that would be impossible is to stop at 1.5 degrees Celsius and thus stop the really major damage that is being done to the planet and to all life on Earth. We have trees out in front of this building that I'm broadcasting from that, that wilted during our three days of 116 degree weather here in Portland last summer, and they still haven't recovered. We've got, you know, we're, we're looking at a wildfire season here in Oregon and all across the West Coast. Now you've got you know, large chunks of New Mexico on fire, Arizona, parts of Arizona and Texas are on fire. California is holding their breath. Lake Mead is is now, you know, they're talking about re, renaming it Puddle Mead. Bad joke, sorry, but you get the point. I mean, it's empty. We are in a crisis brought to you by the lies of the fossil fuel industry, who, by the way, are still funding lies.
Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation in Reconstruction America. Yeah, Reconstruction, like the 1870s. This is from the prologue titled Lost. The dog stopped along the trail ahead of him, growling. Yellowstone Jack Baronet reined in his horse and dismounted, taking his gun from the saddle. He soon saw what had captured the dog's attention. An animal was dragging itself slowly up the side of the cut, a narrow canyon through the Gallatin Mountains leading to the Yellowstone Basin beyond. A black bear, Jack thought, possibly wounded. He approached warily, his feet crunching on the hard crust of three days' snow. Drawing closer, he could see that it was not a bear, it was a man. He was crawling on his knees and elbows and making a low, groaning noise. His clothes were in tatters, his long beard matted, his fingers curled into claws. The skin on his face and arms was thin and translucent, clinging to his bones like wet paper. This could be the man Yellowstone Jack had been looking for, the explorer whose friends had put up a bounty for his return, the man who'd been given up for lost. Are you Truman Everts? he asked. The man looked up at Jack through half-closed eyes. Yes, he croaked, all that is left of him. Jack smiled. We've come for you, he said. I'm saved, Everts whispered and collapsed on the trail unconscious. Six weeks before Jack found him in the cut, Truman Everts said goodbye to his 19-year-old daughter Bessie and left the small mining town of Helena, Montana to join an expedition to Yellowstone Basin. He was an unlikely candidate for an adventure in the wilderness. A 54-year-old widower who was terribly nearsighted, Everts had served as assessor of internal revenue for the Montana Territory for several years until his term ended in February of 1870. He was prepared to return to the East Coast with Bessie in July when a few friends suggested a scout of the Yellowstone country. Everts was no mountain man, but he could ride a horse and shoot a gun. He was reasonably sure he could handle himself on the roughest of mountain trails or in a fight with Crow or Shoshone warriors that they might run across. And Everts was curious. In 1870, despite the arrival of thousands of Americans and European immigrants in the Great Northwest, an area extending from the western edge of the Great Lakes to the Pacific Coast, Yellowstone remained beyond the reach of the territorial or the federal government. The basin was hemmed in by four mountain ranges. On maps of the region made in the 1870s, they looked like the rim of a giant crater. Slicing through them were narrow canyons like the cut created by rivers clawing their way from the basin through the mountains and into the broad valleys of Montana and Wyoming. The largest of these waterways was the Yellowstone, which rushed through the Gallatin Mountains before arcing to the north and east toward the Missouri River. Crow and Lakota people called the river Heheka, or Elk, but French traders working at forts along the Missouri in the 18th century recorded the name that the Gros Venra gave it, Mitzi Adias, Yellow Rock River, after the rocks that lined its bank downstream. For thousands of years, Blackfoot, Nez Perce, Crow, Shoshone, and Bannock bands crossed the Yellowstone Basin in all seasons. In the early 19th century, French, English, and American trappers followed the trails that these indigenous people had made. Most returned. Stories they told of thundering waterfalls and cliffs made of glass, of mud volcanoes and geysers that exploded out of the ground, and huge clouds of steam and boiling water seemed absurd. Everyone knew that trappers were inveterate liars who loved a good story. It seemed foolhardy to believe them. And yet, what if these stories were true?
1860, a U.S. military expedition came close to entering Yellowstone country from the southeast side, but the Wind River Range, with its sawtooth peaks still covered in snow in midsummer, made it a physical impossibility. Local miners made plans to explore Yellowstone during the Civil War and the years after, but they had failed to raise funding or secure military escorts to protect them from indigenous bands who saw them as trespassers. In 1869, a three-man team sent out on their own and returned after more than a month in the Yellowstone, confirming many of the details from the trappers. When these men tried to publish their stories in national newspapers, editors refused, believing that they were lying. Within Montana territory, however, these amateur explorations gave new credence to reports of the trappers and spurred men like Truman Everts to seriously consider and then commit to striking out for this purported land of natural wonders. The 1870 expedition had come together under the leadership of Nathaniel Langford. After Andrew Johnson took office in the wake of the Lincoln assassination, the president chose Langford as Montana's territorial governor. But Johnson's subsequent battles with the Republican Congress scuttled Langford's appointment. The book is Saving Yellowstone by Megan Kate Nelson, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Donna in Bonnie Lake, Washington. Hey, Donna, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, so I'm connecting the high price of houses and climate change. And thanks to you and your show, too, I'm thinking, I don't think I want to be in the high desert with climate change mm. just getting worse quicker than the scientists. Just the fact that people don't understand climate change and how quickly mm. people, you know, they don't want to think about it. And I just don't think enough people are alarmed yeah. about it. I, I agree. And, so. and, and it's, a, it's a real two-edged sword, too, Donna, because if, if and, and I, I really learned this when uh, Leonardo and I did this movie, um, uh, uh, Last Hours, it's called. You can go over to YouTube and plug in uh, my name or DiCaprio's name in Last Hours and it'll come up. And, you know, it's about catastrophism. It's, it's about the end of the world. And people just don't want to hear that. People get freaked out by that. But it is, it's, exactly. it's real. And it's, exactly. and, it, and it's aimed right at us. Donna, thank you for the call. And great yeah. to hear from you. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same channel. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. And that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. And say a prayer for peace in the world, huh? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.